Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's word. Amen. Have a seat. Let's pray together as we come now to God's word. Our Father, we pray that your light would shine in our darkness as we now study uh, your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, in terms of billboard space, there are few sites on the face of the planet more prominent uh, to uh, place an advertisement than in Times Square, New York. And on October the 10th, this 2013, on the corner of 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, you know, somewhere around there, um, there was the following digital billboard advertisement. It went like this. To all our atheist friends, thank God you're wrong. (laughs) Well, predictably enough, a mere two days later, there was a reply on the exact same digital billboard. It went like this, OMG, there is no God, exclamation mark. Well, no doubt this is all meant to be fun and it's probably good humored, but it makes, it makes me at least, and maybe you too, wonder whether there's a way past all this sort of dumbed down cultural God talk that's mere slogan, sloganeering these days. After all, it's not the first time in recent years that this kind of culture war over religion has taken to the public square to launch campaigns. Above the Lincoln Tunnel on the New Jersey side in 2010, there was this advertisement. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. I mean, come on. I mean, can we please engage brains? Uh, It's a little trite, isn't it? Um, Perhaps someone here actually wrote that advertisement. Well done. Um, Brilliant. But uh, it's... There seems to be a sort of... uh, a tendency these days for what I like to call public nose-tweaking, you know, on the issue of, of God talk. It goes all the way back perhaps just to 2008 in London. There was a prominent atheistic campaign that placed commercials on the side of buses in London, and it went like this. Perhaps you remember it. God probably does not exist. Stop worrying and enjoy your life. Well, it, there are so many assumptions in that, you know, why is worrying connected to not believing in God, I mean, or enjoying your life? Uh, it just becomes crass, uh, idiotic almost, posturing. And it makes me wonder, and perhaps you wonder, whether there is any way past this sort of um, sloganeering. Is there actually a way to find a reliable answer to the question as to whether the season that we celebrate, if we are Christians, this season does have a rational basis in the existence of God incarnate? In the flesh, Jesus, fully God, fully man. Is there a way to rationally believe that today? 
Well, there is. And actually, John shows us how. See, John's gospel is written. He tells us specifically why. It's probably the easiest book in the Bible to know why he wrote it, because he tells us in John 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written that you might believe in Jesus and uh, believing in his name, therefore find life. So much the idea that not believing in God is the way to enjoy life, for John, believing in God is the way to find life. That's why the whole book is written, and over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at just the beginning of the book, uh, John's famous prologue, the first 18 verses or so. They are some of the richest theological words ever written, as well as some of the deepest philosophy, and inevitably, we will merely scratch the surface, but we'll do our best to try and grasp its meaning for us today. And this, this section of the, of the gospel uh, as the whole, but particularly this section here, is especially designed to encourage us and to enable us to believe in Jesus as the Word of God incarnate in human flesh, fully God and fully man in one person. Now, how on earth can you believe that rationally? Well, there are a couple of different ways that you might do so. One would be if there are eyewitnesses to Jesus that attest to His divinity, well, indeed, we'll see in subsequent weeks, John uh, takes that approach in this gospel. He introduces his namesake, John the Baptist, who was a witness, and he himself, the author, uh, John was too, to the Word of God incarnate. He claims to have seen Jesus as fully God in flesh. He tabernacled among us. This, this God was here. I saw him, John says. I was an eyewitness. So he takes that approach. The trouble with that approach by itself is that it is unlikely to convince people, especially people today, but even in John's day as well. See, modern science has, and skeptical philosophers for always, forever, but modern science has trained us to believe that miracles cannot happen. That's the assumption. So what happens? You hear someone say that they have an eyewitness to the miracle of God incarnate, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, uh, born in a manger, holding the stars in his hands. Uh, what happens is we're far more likely these days to believe the person who says that they saw the miracle is wrong than to believe the actual miracle, because miracles cannot happen. And so what John does, and I say it's modern science, but it's been skeptical philosophy as well forever, what John does is, in addition to the evidence of the eyewitness, he provides a framework. It's as if he's saying, you really need to understand what we mean by God incarnate and Jesus the Christ. So many misunderstandings about that. If you don't grasp what we mean, you're going to reject something which is not what we mean. You need to understand what we mean by God in flesh. You need to get the framework. And until you have the framework, the eyewitness accounts are probably not going to persuade you. So it's this approach that John takes in the first five verses of uh, our passage this morning. He's explaining how the logos, the word, makes best sense of life, the universe, and everything. Now, actually, this is also a scientific approach. Not just the evidential kind, but the framework kind too. It is also a scientific approach. Really, it is. 
You see, in science, you do not simply gather evidence, you also interpret the evidence which you have gathered by means of theories. It's what Thomas Kuhn, the, the groundbreaking, um, uh, in his groundbreaking description of the structure of scientific revolutions, what he called paradigms. We amass evidence and then we construct a paradigm or a theory that interprets that evidence that helps us make sense of the world around us and the evidence we've amassed. So John, in these first five verses, is uh, presenting us a way of looking at life. He's presenting us, his readers, the logos that makes best sense of the world. And he picks that term, logos, or word, deliberately. He had a dual overlapping connotations, not only for Old Testament religion, but also for the Greek, pagan, philosophical, scientific world. John is saying that the Logos, the Word, makes best sense of life, the universe, and everything according not only to religious tradition, but also the most current science and philosophy of his day, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the, so- and the Stoics. And our day, too, we will find, I think. So if we celebrate reason this season, we need to celebrate the Logos. John is saying. Now he has this metaphor, darkness, not overcoming the light, and he gives three reasons. Here's the first one. The darkness has not overcome the light, first because of the original word. Look down with me at verses 1 and 2, if you will, my friends. And there John says, in the beginning was the word. So first, the darkness has not overcome the light because of the original word. Verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, the original Word. What is John saying? He's saying we cannot understand reality until we understand it has a non-material, pre-existent logos or Word behind it all and before it all. The fact that we can think, our mind... Our consciousness, what it demands an explanation. And the explanation, the paradigm, is the pre-existent, distinct, and divine logos, according to John. And that's how the first explanation of how the darkness has not overcome the light. And he explains that original word in three ways. One, the logos is in beginning. Now that phrase, in beginning, uh, will remind many people of Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible that starts with, in the beginning. Here John is saying that the Logos has no beginning. Simply was. In beginning. He's reaching for a form of words that can express the timelessness, the pre-existence of the Logos. In beginning. Always was. Of course, it reminds us of uh, the Genesis account in chapter 1 where it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, and there was light and all the rest in those days of creation. The world came into existence. And this logos, this word, God speaking, the word, this immaterial intelligence, Well, it stands behind natural order and events in a way that without it there could be no human intelligence to assess and debate the origin of matter. It is illogical to deny logos. (laughs) It permeates existence. 
Of course, the question, though, is where does this logos come from, this word come from? And John claims, in beginning, it always was. We will see he always was. To the logos is with God. Literally, this is the word was toward God. It's a very, it's a perfectly good translation. All English translations have with God. It's a perfectly good translation. But uh, literally, it is the word was toward God. And it may suggest, many scholars have thought, this isn't original to me, it may suggest an intimacy of relationship between the word and God that John is sort of hinting towards or explaining or suggesting. One scholar, A.T. Robertson, pictured it like this. He said, the word was face to face with God, toward God, you see. Well, perhaps you think of Proverbs 8, uh, if it's legitimate to think of the description of the wisdom of God as part of the background to Logos, the Word. Proverbs 8 puts it like this, with intimacy and distinction at the same time. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, before His deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in His presence. Logos, toward God, with God. So not only then is it illogical to deny the Logos that permeates existence, it requires the explanation of a distinct, personal, eternal Logos, an immaterial intelligence It is also illogical to deny the existence of relationship built into the fabric of life. Our personalities derive from the love and intimacy of God and word toward God, Father and Son, as well as Holy Spirit. See, this universe of ours, this life of ours, is not a material concrete mixer, but there are thoughts and relationships. And what John is saying, that can only be explained, the only paradigm that can explain that, the only theory that can explain this evidence is the pre-existent, distinct, and divine logos. That's his claim. Three, this Logos is not only in beginning, pre-existent, with God, distinct, toward God, but also was God. Now be careful, John is not simply saying that the Word was divine or had God-like properties. John is saying the Word is God fully and completely. Uh, Perhaps uh, those of us who are aware of the Greek here may realize that there's no definite article, the, before God in the original. It's a little technical, but sometimes you'll come across people who bring this out, so I'm going to mention it briefly. Greek sometimes writes this way. For instance, verse 49, a little later in chapter 1, it says, you are the king of Israel in our translation, but that also has no the before king in the original, obviously it doesn't mean there you are a king of Israel, it means you are the king of Israel. And actually, if John had wanted to say that God was the Word, and the Word was God, as Martin Luther put it, 
There could have been no more clear way to say it in Greek, distinct and yet fully and completely at the same time God. As the Chalcedon Creed put it, he has two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, in one person. Or Nicaea about this, God of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. You say, well, how does that explain how we can accept rationally God incarnate? Well, in other words... Science today may, arguably, many people would say, be able to take us to the Big Bang. Latest theory. It may be able to explain how, but it cannot explain why. Or indeed, it cannot explain why we need to know why. why there are the laws of physics, nor why we need to know why there are the laws of physics. It cannot explain, in other words, our mind. And John, therefore, is providing the framework, the Logos, who is God, pre-existent, distinct, very God of very God. This, this is not just a God of the gaps argument. You know, science can't yet explain this, therefore that's where we find God. No, that's not what John's saying. John is saying the very nature of everything, indeed the very nature of every, not everything, every thought, demands and is only satisfied by this explanation. See, we all have to find an ultimate somewhere, don't we? It was the great landscape painter, J.M.W. Turner, who was fascinated with the properties of light. And if you know his paintings, always paintings shine with subtle appreciation for the different hues of, of light. But towards the end of his life, Turner, I've been told, is said to have finally remarked this, the sun is God. Well, many people today simply would say the world is God, or the universe is God. That's what we mean by God. There's no more is than what is there materially, visibly, concretely. And as they type such sentences on blogs or in books, they do so on computers whose information revolution constantly witnesses to an immaterial information whose existence cannot be explained by matter alone. There is a mind behind it all. There is a logos, the word. And so the darkness then has not overcome the light because of the original word. But also, second, the darkness has not overcome the light because of the creating word. Well, in verse 3, John says this, All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Amazing sentence. There's uh, been some new research which I found rather amusing. I came across just uh, the last week. And this new research appears to show that the less we know about something, the more likely we are to think we know a lot about it. I've often wondered whether that's the case secretly. 
Researchers Justin Kruger and David Dunning from Cornell University seem to have made a connection between people lacking ability and thinking that they have the ability. They, they argue that the perception of capability is uh, connected to the actual capability. If you're not good enough to know that you're not good enough, you won't know that you're not good enough, you see. And conversely, if someone becomes more expert, they become more aware of the true nature of true expertise that's above and beyond and further. They gave this really amusing example at the start of their research paper that I read about. They described a Pittsburgh bank robber who in 1995 was arrested after robbing two banks in broad daylight without wearing a mask. The police couldn't figure out why he did it, and they showed him the footage of the security cameras, and he simply protested, but I wore the juice. And they thought, what on earth are you talking about? And they discovered that this man believed that if you rub lemon juice over his face, you would become invisible to security cameras but I wore the juice. Well, it's a little extreme as an illustration, but sometimes when I listen to discussions about creation and evolution and all that kind of thing, I wish people would read John chapter 1, verse 3. You see that what concerns John here is not the mechanism, but the mechanic. Not the order of events, but the one who gave the order. Not how things were made, but who made them. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, believe you me, I fully understand how frustrating it is when you hear people trying to defend Christianity, spouting views that are borderline idiotic, if not downright heretical, uh, you know, and all of that. And you can get wrong ideas, and people can get fixated, like they get fixated on seeing a car crash on the side of the highway, and they can't keep their eyes off this blog that's talking about some issue related to this, you know. But the reality is that we will not understand what the Bible does and does not say about origins until we understand what it says about who originated it. All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I listened to one well-known debate about a prominent, uh, between a prominent atheist and a believing mathematician at Oxford University, and the atheist kept on wanting to pin the mathematician down to exactly how old the earth was and what the sequence of events would be and all that sort of thing, and the mathematician kept on trying to say that the whole point was that he was making was that the discussion they were having would actually be impossible unless there was a logos behind all of reality, not merely a material Existence. Slabs of meat do not talk or think. Whence the intelligence, if no logos? Now that's John's point here. It's all through him and for him and by him. You cannot explain the life around us otherwise. John is not yet maintaining the point about the miracle of the incarnation. That will come later in his prologue, nor is he yet pointing to the eyewitness accounts. That would also come later. Here, he's laying the groundwork saying that life itself cannot be explained unless life itself is capable by definition of explanation. And to simply say that existence is which is what your typical atheist will say on an internet blog forum these days, it just is, to simply say that existence is in answer to why it is, 
for John is to fail to answer the question and to miss the point that actually we can ask the question. Even if we deny God for John, we are using God-like properties of Logos to do so. Otherwise, we would not be able to deny him or think about him, let alone acknowledge him or worship him. Of course, then, the next comeback is that this world is not all logical and order. Well, John knows that too well. There is a darkness, but it has not overcome the light because of the original word, because of the creating word, third, and most personally, because of the living word. So here's verses 4 and 5, the end of our passage this morning. John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, John here is showing us that uh, the life and light of the living word uh, has not been overcome by the darkness in three profound as well as personal ways. Let me try and bring them out for us. There's a, there's a lot in these few sentences here, verses 4 and 5. Let me try and bring them out in three simple ways. One, in the word was life. Now, let me just allow that to settle and underline it, as it were, with a pause because of this. It's easy for us who grew up in church to think of church or even God or the Bible or even perhaps Jesus as a sort of form of institutional commitment Merely an organization. But actually, it's far more than that, isn't it? In him, now the word is personal. He'll name the name later, Jesus. In him is life. So nothing would exist without him, for he gives life. But also nothing true, beautiful, exciting, living, not dying would exist without him, for he has life. So when John will ask us to believe in Jesus, to, to commit our lives to Jesus, to give our lives to Jesus wholly and completely and follow him as our Lord and Savior, when John says believe in Jesus to find life, what he's saying is align your lives with life. For in him is life. The shadows, the darkness, the death are all the opposite end of the spectrum, the opposite extreme to Jesus who has life. The most alive people in the world are those who follow the word. This word that was life was the light of all people, the light of men. Well, of course, here it's not males as a gender description. Here it just means people. John is saying that the life of Jesus, the pre-existent Logos, is the light of all people. What does he mean by this? The most usual explanation is the one that John Calvin gave, which is this. John here, he says, is referring to the common light of nature. I think that's probably right. 
is so. John is then saying that everyone everywhere has the light of conscience, a sense of God, and is uh, built for worship. They have a design template for the temple. Now, isn't that true? I mean, you, you can find animals that care for their young, animals that think after a fashion. You go down to the zoo and find them, you know, thinking and playing various tricks and whatever. You can find that. But never, to my knowledge, has there been discovered a monkey who worships. Oh, no, every human culture, every human tribe, every society, however modern or postmodern, has its centers of worship, its temples, whether traditionally Christian or icons of industry and marketing and fame and celebrity. Why? Because we are built for worship. There are shards of light in all people from the source of that light, and they direct it one way or another to darkness or back to the light. Three, despite that darkness, it has not overcome the light. Now, to understand how, how and why that is, we need to delve into that word, overcome. The translation of that word, some of you will know, overcome, is debated. You may even have different uh, translations in different Bibles here this morning. Uh, that's because the word itself, everyone acknowledges, every scholar acknowledges, can be neither understand or overcome. Why? Because at its root, the word has a sense of grasp. So this word, in different contexts, either means grasping something mentally. I- I've grasped that idea, understood, Or it means grasping or seizing something physically. I've overcome it. I've seized it. You see. The question is what the word means here in this context. And I think it probably means both things. (laughs) Most uh, scholars will admit that uh, John likes to write in a way that deliberately uses a wide range of the words that he chooses So it's not unintentionally meaning both, it's intentionally, deliberately meaning both. Let me try and break that down for you and why that helps. See, it's hard to think of darkness as not understanding, isn't it? Because darkness is not something that we usually conceptualize as being able to understand. But on the other hand, the reason for the incarnation for Jesus, God in human flesh, why the incarnation? The reason for the incarnation, as Bengal, one great ancient commentator put it, is that the darkness did not understand the light. And therefore God revealed himself, not just now through the general light of nature, but specifically through the uh, light of Bethlehem and Calvary, the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus the Christ, the Logos now in flesh. What is more, the subtleties keep on building this amazing prologue. What is more, the same root word for understand or overcome is used later in John's prologue, translated in verses 11 and 12 as receive. Different words, but the same root word. So John then could be sort of casting an eye ahead 
saying that the darkness did not understand or receive, but to those who did receive the Logos, the Word made flesh, namely, he, he will name the name later, Jesus. Now, the, the life was given to them. And then again, there's a fascinating switch of tense in this verse that points to a particular event. The light shines, present tense. First time that John has used it so far as he writes his gospel. Present tense, shines, and the darkness has not overcome it. Overcome is aorist or past tense, which speaks of particular completed action, something that is done and finished. Now, some then would suggest that what John is hinting at here is that the darkness that has not overcome it, he's thinking of a particular moment when the darkness attempted to overcome it. Some uh, talk about the fall in Genesis chapter 3 when humanity rebelled against God and darkness and suffering and sin and evil entered the world but did not overcome the light as we read the story of Genesis and Exodus and on. Or perhaps later in John's gospel, he'll pick up the same theme when Jesus is crucified and yet rises again. And the light is not overcome. See, I think John is probably intending both. Let me try and illustrate it for you like this. There's always dark things going on in our world, aren't there? There was an event just, uh, I think it was just yesterday or maybe earlier this morning, a, a train in New York City that was derailed. Oh, I don't know whether you've been following the news of a horrific dark event in, in London recently. Police have discovered that three individuals were kept in human slavery in a small house on a normal street for 30 years. 30 years. But what's shocking everyone is not only the length of time, 30 years, or the inhumanity of that slavery on an average street in a modern city today without anyone really doing anything about it. What's shocking them is these individuals, these three people, were not locked up. There were no handcuffs, no barbed wire fences, no locks physically on the doors. They were, physically at least, free to move around. But mentally they were not. Emotionally they were not. In their hearts they were not. So the police are wrestling with these, what they've called, invisible cords that bound these individuals. Well, I'm afraid darkness has that effect. Perhaps you feel it. Oh, yes, we've discovered that there are sound, logical reasons for accepting the Christ child born at Bethlehem, but sound, logical reasons rarely on their own persuaded people. Oh, yes, there's an explanation of life around us that's compelling that goes all the way back to the original word, the creating word. But sometimes all that is not enough. Not enough intellectually to comprehend. We need the living word actually to shine his light and overcome our darkness. I suspect we all have such areas of darkness. And the good news is 
that John is beginning to declare to us that by believing in him, this Logos, this Jesus, the light, overcomes our darkness. Not simply a matter of intellectual comprehension, also a matter of personal reception, a matter of sheer, shining brightness of this living world. This light. John is so wonderfully evocative with his imagery, but it's not a game. It's for a purpose. Let me give you another image from a more recent uh, description that may help explain that purpose. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his first book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, takes the Fellowship of the Ring to Moria, the deep mines of Khazadum. Unknown to anyone but Gandalf, these mines are no longer inhabited by friendly dwarves. They've been captured, and over everything hangs a deep darkness. And Gandalf, Gandalf makes a light shine on the top of his staff, employing magic to shine in the darkness. And the twelve trudge through the tunnels wearily. Gandalf fights the Balrog, an ancient evil. He falls, apparently, to his doom. The light shines, and they trudge on, and then one day he returns, now as Gandalf the White shining so bright they have to hide their eyes from his light. What a little image. Darkness overcome by light. I'm not saying, and John's not saying, that finding this light is simply an emotional or mythical experience like reading Narnia or Tolkien or finding a religious buzz or having a a high emotionally. Oh, John has outlined his framework for understanding life based upon the Logos, a framework far more compelling intellectually. I and many others have found, scientists and philosophers and artists, than any other explanatory grid or paradigm for knowledge, science, truth, philosophy, and theology. There is all that framework. But there is also power. Light that shall not be overcome. It shines in the darkness of a prison. It shines in the depths of a mine. It shines in the garden when the darkness began and was not overcome. It shines in a little small stable or cave, in a manger, the light of the world, It shines at a cross. And if you understand and receive that light, Jesus will overcome your darkness. Until one day you shine with him forever in glory. seems to me to be a far more compelling reality than can ever be depicted by a slogan on a billboard in Times Square. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have overcome the darkness. 
And yet, in this world, we still need that light of yours to shine. I pray, Father, it would shine to give hope to your people this morning. I pray, Lord, that uh, that light would shine to give meaning to your people this morning. I pray, Lord, that light would shine with power to release captives bound in sin and hate and bitterness this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.